Hello! Welcome to The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I've been working in radio for over 15 years. A few years ago, I took a risk. I quit my job. My job as the lead producer of a daily public radio show. And I moved to Rome. Just for a year. And that is where this show began. And Rome is where my co-host Tiffany Parks lives. We met on the school bus in the sixth grade. And now we host this show together. For you. Whether you boldly moved overseas like Tiffany did, or reluctantly moved like I did. And this isn't just a show for expats. It's a show for repats and explorers and people trying to get their courage up to do something new. It's a show about taking risk, trying new things, about exploration and discovery, about learning to fit in. Questions of home, questions of belonging, about what we want to see, about how we want to change. Each show has a theme, so you can jump around if you wish. Or better yet, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows, and let us be your friends on your journey. Welcome. To New Orleans, this is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And I'm still in New Orleans. Tiffany's still in Rome. Both arguably places that have undergone major tragic events and become different. And everyone right now is going, okay, I kind of remember that a hurricane hit New Orleans at one point. Let's see, when was that? I can tell you it was on August 29th, 2005. Hurricane Katrina really screwed this city up. Then people are thinking in their heads, huh, I don't really remember anything happening to Rome anytime recently that might have changed the uh, culture or population makeup. But (laughs) Tiffany... well. Let's step back to when we were discussing this this episode. This was your idea, being in New Orleans. And, you know, we were thinking about, okay, what other cities have gone through something similar to that? Maybe, you know, New York City after 9-11, maybe Houston recently after their big hurricane. And I was like, oh, well, Rome after the sack of Rome. And you were like, okay, the sack of Rome, you know, 1527? (laughs) You know. (laughs) You know, just, just a little bit before Katrina. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so our idea was cities that have had tragedies, whether they are natural tragedies or otherwise, and how that changes the city mm-hmm. and the consciousness of the people in the city as well, the people who live there. Exactly. And since you're good at history, and I am no Hurricane Katrina expert, but this idea came to me because I had gone to the Hurricane Katrina Museum, which is now a thing here right off of Jackson Square in New Orleans. And it sort of tries to rebuild the lead up to the storm, what happened during the storm, what happened in the aftermath to the storm, and a little bit about how the city is still trying to rebuild itself all these many, many years later. It's been over a decade since it happened. It did change the city in quite significant ways. And the people here could go on and on about how the city prior and the city afterwards is different. But on some very fundamental levels, it it changed the makeup of the city. The 
population of New Orleans is still, from my understanding, majority black, but at least 100,000 African-American people who lived here didn't come back. So it tipped the balance quite a bit. 100,000 people just left. Yeah, like moved somewhere else and never came back. When it comes to white people leaving and not coming back, they think it was more along the realm of 11,000 people didn't come back. So that's a huge difference. I mean, that also shows you a lot about poverty and resources and, you know, the fact that a lot of those people just couldn't come back either after being displaced for so long or had nothing to come back to because of their homes being completely destroyed. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I think you also have changes to the city and just how it feels. I think one of the things I think is so interesting about being down here, and we've mentioned it in a prior podcast, is that there's such a gallows humor down here about impending doom and tragedy. And that's sort of when you look back at the history of New Orleans, an ongoing theme that you see throughout the history that they always sort of had this gallows humor of life is short and you better live now while you can because you're not going to have much time. And part of that is because it's been historically dangerous here, you know, and they have a huge deep well of slavery and being conquered by these people and those people but they also have huge blights of like yellow fever and they've been flattened by hurricanes before and they've had the city burned to the ground and all sorts of stuff so they just have these the sense of life is short and so you should live the best life you can and hence why when it comes to living in New Orleans, the main lesson I keep learning from people over and over again is it's not about what you do. It's about how you have fun. Mm-hmm. Everybody cares how you celebrate life itself, which I've never lived in a place that was in the United States that was like that, you know, even remotely. No, definitely. I mean, I'm just thinking about Seattle and Boston, the places I've lived in the States, and definitely what you did was important there. <laughs> Or what you were studying if you're in Boston. Yeah, that, that would be the first question that you were asked in almost the entire United States. And we've talked about that with Rome, too. But And what is the first question that people ask in New Orleans when they meet someone? Well, that's what I said. I said, well, what am I supposed to ask? And they're like, well, an appropriate question would be, what are you doing for Halloween? Or how are you going to celebrate the holidays? Or what are you doing at night? Or what's your passion? Do people say things like that? I don't know. What's your passion project? What's your side hustle? Maybe the side hustle. I don't know about the passion project. But and the other interesting thing, too, is uh, a lot of the people that I've met have known people for years and years and years. They have no idea what they do during the day. Wow. And they have no idea what their last names are. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just so different than the way that the United States operates. And I don't think that the way that the United States operates, as we've talked about, is in any way, the right way that we uh, have a tendency or a reputation to live to work rather than work to live. But yeah, I've never, it definitely has gotten me lost in some circumstances down here because I, you know, meet new people and you think, okay, I can't, I can't ask them what they do, you know, (laughs) so what should we talk about? Is it truly a faux pas to ask people what they do? I only ever did it once before being corrected, and it definitely made everybody sort of uncomfortable. Really? It was sort of like, you are definitely not from here, you know, and if anything, they wanted to kind of avoid the question. Really? I was always told as a young foreign exchange student on my way to France that in France, you don't ask that question, that in Europe in general, you don't ask that question, not because 
it's not important for people what they do. It's just that it's it's a private thing, and it's it's rude to invade someone's privacy in such a way. Interesting. But I never actually found that to be the case. I mean, I'm not going to say I socialized that much while I was like a 16 year old in France, but I, you know, <laughs> but I definitely felt like people did talk about what they do, and, and in Italy, I feel like everybody talks about what they do. Yeah. And it's not that they talk only about that. It's just that that gets mentioned at a certain point and people are naturally curious, but people don't sit around talking shop necessarily as much as maybe they do in the States. Yeah, it's interesting because New Orleans was conquered by France and by Spain. And it's also so isolated by water. So it would have been, you know, conquered by those places. And then, you know, in the rest of the United States, you have such a British influence because of being conquered by Britain. Or conquered, you know, whatever, whatever yeah. you want to call it. Conquered, colonized. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it just has a totally different influence too. Plus you have a Haitian influence and all these people coming up from yes, below. So. That's true too. I think um, it's important to remember that we're not just colonized by the British. We were colonized by the Puritans. Right. Yeah. And that really, really influences, I think, a lot of the American psyche, really. I'm not going to talk about New Orleans because I think you're right. That's probably very different just because of the French thing. But it's funny living here. This is just a side tangent. I'm not going to go off. Just, I'm not going to go off too far. Don't worry. But just, <laughs> What about the sack of Rome? Everybody's wondering. Yeah, we're going to get there. We're going to get Such there. a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> but I catch myself sometimes when I'm talking to Italian people. I'm like, oh, I'm just, I just said something really puritanical. There are certain things that are in our consciousness that are so clearly come from there. So it's interesting to think that there might be a really different influence for people down in that part of the country. And the French have always been, you know, they've always been more laissez-faire, just to use a French word, um, but much more do what feels good sort of thing. Whereas the British are like, no, no, you have to do it like this. And it has to feel horrible. Otherwise, it's not. (laughs) Yeah, the Puritans being a group where, you know, that sort of thinking wasn't enough. It had to be even more so, like even more conservative, even more like reined in, you know? So yeah, it's Mm -hmm. pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You said that after, despite the fact that people do, like you say, have this gallows humor and live it up and live for today because tomorrow might never come. You did mention earlier when we were just talking once that people don't party as much as they did before Katrina. Oh, oh, that's what one of our earlier guests said. Not that they don't party as much. They do. I think that one of the things that happened after Hurricane Katrina, this is just what I've heard. Okay. So I have not done extreme amounts of research. So feel free, New Orleanians, to combat what I'm saying. I've only been here for a little while. But what I've been told by multiple people was that there was always sort of this sense of it is what it is down here. There's a huge um, swaths of the population that are in poverty. There was just sort of like a live and let live thing. This is how New Orleans is. This is how it operates. And so there was sort of a carelessness maybe to it that after Hurricane Katrina, it didn't feel acceptable to not in some way try to better the city or to care for the city in some way. Because you had people in dire straits. And so you get this extreme circumstance where neighbors have to help each other or people are going to die. Even more people are going to die. It already strikes me just from being down here how friendly and how well people sort of watch after their neighbors and their neighborhood. But I wasn't here before that. So I don't know if that's 
being in the South and that Southern friendliness, or if that's something that came more about after the hurricane, where you have to also be a responsible citizen. You can't just sort of take care of your own. And so I think you see people coming back and forging nonprofits or working to improve the criminal justice system, which is extremely um, difficult, (laughs) to put it lightly, without getting down the path in that down here. You know, it's that neighbor helping neighbor, start a nonprofit, start this, start that, try to get the schools to be better. All these things that maybe in the past you would have been like, I'm living it up for today. It's not like you were mean. You just didn't necessarily feel like you had a responsibility to fix things. But then again, what I haven't figured out, given our earlier conversation, is is that something that we talk about? Or is that something we also don't talk about? Like if your main purpose is to celebrate how everybody has fun, do you ask them about that nonprofit that they're working on? Or, you know, is that also hands off? I don't know. Well, it seems to me that for a place that's very live and let live, they have a lot of social rules concerning what you can and cannot ask in a social situation. (laughs) I'm sure they don't. I'm sure it's like me going, uh, you know, it's sort of like, when you go to Japan and you walk into the uh, into the room that, that you're not supposed to have your shoes on and you walk in with your shoes on and everyone's like, uh, ha, 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 ha. That happened to you, didn't it? Of course it did. <laughs> so I feel like, you know, down here is that same way, a little bit, a little bit more foreign than what you would expect in the United States where it's not like everybody's going to be like, oh my gosh, she walked into this room with her shoes on. But it's more me trying to navigate, how do I not seem like a foreigner here? How do I fit in with these people? You know, what is their ethos? And and I'm also trying to figure out because I'm down here partly to see if their ethos matches what I want out of life that's missing, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of this early days trying to sort out what's going on here, what type of people are here. So it's probably that you could talk about everything. And I'm just being paranoid. Okay, that makes that sense. Said, that said, <laughs> I've been sitting with people before in a coffee shop and a couple people will go by. They'll be like, oh, those are tourists. And I'll be like, how do you know they're tourists? And they're like, they are. I can spot tourists too. But I mean, I guess I'm in a country, a foreign country, but I can spot tourists so easily. I, I could probably spot them in the States too now, just because I just tell, like, I just know what they do, what they how they dress, how they wander, how they walk, what they have on their persons. Like you can just tell tourists, even if they don't have a map and a guidebook out. That's a show that we should do is how do you dress when you're being a tourist? If you can really go like that person is dressed like a tourist, that stands to reason that we would be dressed differently while we were tourists. Of course. Well, there's a, it's a really great giveaway in Europe, at least. Fanny packs. I'm no, I mean, (laughs) Yes, but that's not what I was going to say. The giveaway is sneakers. And I mean, I'm guilty of this too, because I mean, if I'm going to be walking around a city all day, of course I'm going to wear sneakers. Yeah, that's a good point. But all you have to do is put on high heels if you're a woman. And you already feel like, like when I walk around with high heels on in Rome, I feel like I look less like a foreigner and more Mm -hmm. like a local. Particularly if you can navigate all those cobblestones in those high heels. Yes, yes. Uh, Not easy. I ruined many, many a pair of shoes trying to do that in my earlier Rome days. Yes, I just uh, got rid of a pair of shoes that I destroyed in Rome that way. 
god just got rid of sad i know i held on to them for so long because i'm like but these are the shoes i wore in rome (laughs) (laughs) i thought you only had flip-flops i am (laughs) (laughs) maybe you didn't take me out to enough fancy dinners i guess not i guess not uh so anyway but sack of rome (laughs) well um what was the before the sack of rome and the after the sack of rome like well, you know, because I was here both before and after. I know. Uh, we, you were a noble woman, right? I remember Rome back in 1520. It was, those were the days, man. Those were the days. Yeah. You never were more prosperous than then. Yeah. Well, kind of, I mean, that's kind of true. I mean, Rome did eventually become very prosperous in the 1600s and 1700s. But, okay, Michelangelo was painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling in between 1508 and 1512, uh, Raphael was here in Rome. He was at the same exact time painting the uh, the Pope's bedroom and apartments in the Vatican. There were just so many incredible artists in Rome at that time. It was kind of the peak of the Renaissance. That first, those first few decades of the 16th century, that was considered like really the high Renaissance, and. There was a lot of appreciation for artists. Humanism was this, you know, very important concept at that time. It was a pretty great time for art and probably for the people living in the city. I'm not a historian, although I I play one on TV. You know, I play one on this podcast. No, you play one on the streets of Rome when people. Take I play one tours. on the streets of Rome. Yes, uh, but I'm not. A, technically, I'm not a historian. Although I'd like to be someday. Um, and you know a lot. Like, let's not sell yourself short. <laughs> you have read a lot of Roman history and you've memorized a lot of Roman history. Yes, I have. Let's give yourself some credit. Thank you. But, uh, you know, it was, I think it was probably if you were, you know, if you were male and either artistic or rich, it was probably a pretty great place to be. In um, 1527, there was a sack on the city. It had been a long time since there had been a major sack. I think that the the last time before that was um, the Norman sack in the 11th century, I think. So, you know, that's kind of something that you, you, you think like a medieval thing or an ancient thing. You think of these sacks back in 300 BC or whatever. So to us, the year 1527 sounds like a long time ago, but really Rome was a very sophisticated city at that time. I can see how the people at that time lived a little bit like we do, sort of thinking, oh yes, bad and horrible things used to happen all the time, but those kind of things don't happen anymore. The city was attacked. It's very complicated. I'm not going to go into it all, and I don't really understand it all, but it definitely had to do with the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, and his. he was having some kind of a feud with the Pope, and um, a whole bunch of mercenary soldiers from Spain and Germany, and these mercenary soldiers had been fighting for Charles V, the Emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, for a long time, and they had not been paid in a long time, and they were... They were really kind of desperate. They were underfed. They were dressed in rags. They were really kind of desperate. And basically, they arrived at the gates of the city. And I think Charles V wanted to, you know, again, the the, the details of this are, are misty in my mind, but he wanted to, he definitely wanted to sack the city, but he did not know what the soldiers were going to do. He did not anticipate what they were going to do. And he basically said, okay, look, we don't have any money to pay you, so just take Rome. Just take the city. Whatever you can get your hands on is yours, and that's your payment. 
And these soldiers went absolutely mad. The things that they did are almost, they're almost unspeakable. Really, literally unspeakable. Things that like are horrifying. Give us some examples though. You have to speak it. Now we're like, what? What did they do? It's it's so horrible. It's, I know they did graffiti. Yeah, they. I remember that they did some graffiti on the painting, a painting in a Raphael painting, and in the Vatican museums and uh, others. And they definitely stole a lot of important objects and uh, gold and things from churches and and they they kidnapped people, uh, wealthy people, and they demanded enormous ransoms, and they murdered people. A lot of people, but um, no. That the horror, the most horrible things that I remember reading about were reading that um, they were basically raping anyone that they could get their hands on, whether they were nuns or old ladies, noble women, anyone. And in one particular line, this is the one that I think is really unspeakable, and it's my, my stomach is starting to churn right now. That they forced fathers of families to rape their own daughters. Wow. So that's it's about as unspeakable as, as you can get, I think. And it was just hideous, just absolutely hideous. The city was destroyed. And they say that, for, well, first of all, how many people died? I want to say, I used to know the exact number, um, but I want to say something like 12,000 people were murdered. Mm. Which is a lot of people. I mean, the, the population of Rome at that time was not that big. I mean, it was maybe 100,000, maybe. Yeah, wow. So, so that's a lot of people to die. I mean, you can just sort of imagine just like people in the streets just going crazy and killing anyone they get their hands on. It really changed the city forever. First of all, the Renaissance died that day, people say. You know, that was it. Those lofty ideals and philosophies just kind of disintegrated and it didn't make sense anymore now in the north the renaissance continued and you know the true renaissance in places like the netherlands was really in the 1600s but when we're talking about the italian renaissance that was really the end and uh you know i think for the rest of that century rome definitely took a big step backwards culturally you don't really see in that century, the kind of art that those early early century masters like Raphael and Michelangelo were producing. Even Michelangelo's art changed at that time. And it becomes, you know, especially his paintings, like if you look at the Sistine Chapel ceiling compared to The Last Judgment, which is on the altar, behind the altar, like the work is, is completely different. Like it's the work on the ceiling is full of hope. It's full of... Um, you know, it's so inspiring, especially like the creation of man is so very beautiful and so so uplifting. Yeah, it's also very precise too. Yes, and then you know, you, very geometric and pattern driven. Yes, but also I just think you know this this image of of God enveloped by the the shape of the human brain, which is what most people believe that Michelangelo was doing in his design. This idea that God is God is not some figure that we cannot relate to. And that work, it really, I think he wanted to make God appear as someone more relatable, someone more human. 
and uh, and then you see the Last Judgment, and it's just you know all these people being thrown down into hell basically, and being you know sort of taken across the River Styx and down into the underworld. It just doesn't have the same kind of hope and, and uplifting. Even the people in heaven, like, they're, like, you know, holding their instruments of torture and stuff. Yeah. It's just, it's just, you know. And, um, yeah, I don't think until Caravaggio came along there was anyone with the kind of vision and talent that uh, Raphael Michelangelo Bramante had. And, I mean, I don't know if that's because of the sack of Rome, but it could be. The city definitely became more violent and... Uh, I mean, I'm sure it was violent before as well. I mean, I've seen the Borgias, so, you know. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but you know, so I, f- I feel like that really changed not just the city, but I think that that changed the course of art, art history. There's a tapestry in the Vatican Museums, in the tapestry gallery, that is depicting the, um, the slaughter of the innocents, which, if you need a refresher in your Bible stories, is when Herod had all of the... Um, male babies under the age of two murdered because he was afraid, you know, he'd heard about the Christ child and didn't want anyone usurping his power. In that tapestry, if you look at it closely, you can see what looks like the Pantheon and an obelisk in the background. And some art historians have argued that the artists who were responsible for that were trying to depict really what happened in Rome during the sack of Rome. They were technically depicting the slaughter of the innocents, but they were really showing the kind of horrors that happened in their own city. Do you think that those changes to Rome, the setbacks that would have come from that, all the trauma is at all evidenced in Rome today? Can it carry that far forward into the population that is now? I don't know about that. That's a pretty long time ago. Yeah. I mean, it undoubtedly set in motion things that changed how the city is. No question. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, and I wish I had a better handle on... I remember watching Hurricane Katrina happen from afar in Seattle. And if I can find it, I should play this thing I did in the one-year anniversary. I tried to rebuild what the storm felt like, like what it was like to live through it and what it was like to watch it from afar. I made this 12-minute recreation of Hurricane Katrina and we played it on the radio. Really? And I could not listen through that whole 12 minutes without crying. At the time? At the time and I don't, I bet I couldn't now because in the general scope of things that happen in the United States, that particular storm because uh, well, 1,800 people died in that storm. It's just incredible. I cannot believe it. Just in one city. I'm. That's not counting outer lying areas to New Orleans. Uh-huh. So all those people died, but also all these people, thousands and thousands, like probably over 20,000 people were completely stranded and relatively abandoned by any kind of federal aid for days. In, and it was August in New Orleans, which is extremely hot. Yeah, people didn't have water probably. Yeah, no water, completely isolated. So there's also this like human pain of... Um, almost like a glaring uh, embarrassment about how the United States treats the poor and the division of race and class just so blatantly evident by that storm because, you know, a lot of the people who stayed behind were either elderly or didn't have the resources to to go. 
and then they don't receive any help for so long. And I just remember this woman on that tape, because I pulled clips from all sorts of TV news broadcasts and radio interviews. And I just remember this woman crying and just saying over and over, no one's coming to get us. Oh, my God. Just how desperate that was at that time. And I'd be curious uh, to know, I don't know if you know, of those people who died, how many people died because they were injured, I mean, obviously killed by the actual storm, and how many people died because they didn't have water or food or they were stuck somewhere and no one came to get them? Like, how much happened during the storm and how much happened after? I don't know the percentages of that. I believe that a vast majority of them died from drowning because the levees broke and all of a sudden, you know, a neighborhood would be flooded with three to seven feet of water. Jeez. Like a wall of water. You're in your house. If you can't hatch it your way onto the roof, you're, you get stuck inside. So I think a lot of people drowned, hmm. but I don't, okay. I don't know. I don't Because know. I feel like with the situation in Puerto Rico, it seems like not that many people actually died in the storm, but people are dying and are probably going to continue to die if they don't get medicine, water, electricity for you know medical procedures and stuff. And it, it could be really horrible. I mean, <laughs> I hate to say this, but after having a baby, I feel like the first thing that I think about in these sorts of situations is I think about babies because I have that experience now of having one. I'm not going to say I never thought about children before, but I think when you have a child, it hurts you more when you see children suffering because you can kind of imagine that it's your own child. And well, I remember seeing a little clip from Hurricane Katrina recently, like they were replaying it on some show I was watching, some cable news show. They replayed this little clip back from not long after Katrina. And I just remember it was so clear, just this man, this black man, and he was holding a little tiny baby. And he said, how long are we supposed to survive? How long do you think a three-week-old baby can survive without water, without food, without milk? Oh, my God. It just I just thought, yeah, how long can a baby, three-week-old baby? I mean, and not just how long can they survive. Like, how much are they suffering? I'm thinking about in Puerto Rico, there's so people, so many people without water. And you know that people are, there are babies being born in Puerto Rico right now. Probably every day, there are several babies in Puerto Rico being born. Yep. And what's happening to those babies? And you're, again, I would argue, seeing racism, particularly from our upper level, Mm -hmm. not taking care of the problem, not going down to help, like going down to help, but not going down and help enough or fast enough. Or well enough. Donald Trump is an extreme, Hmm. you know, but, you know, (laughs) I think... I mean, one of the good things maybe that Hurricane Katrina did was highlight the dysfunction within both the local and federal government when it came to a disaster like that with teams not communicating well with each other, even emergency management teams not even allowed to communicate with the army or whatever, that they're so siloed that they can't work together. And I think that that storm highlighted a lot of that dysfunction and supposedly was supposed to make it better i know so let's say hypothetically that it did make it better and yet we still are not reacting well to puerto rico it's fascinating (laughs) Uh, yeah fascinating tragic uh, frustrating um Uh, all of the above tragic 
all of the above. I mean, yeah. And I think that something also happens maybe that you see within the end of the Renaissance is like when an illusion of safety is gone all of a sudden, you can't but help but have a huge ripple effect where now people are going to be reacting in that fearful I'm not safe at any in any moment and that breeds violence and it breeds taking care of your own like staying very cloistered mm-hmm. taking what you can so to speak yeah using your power to get ahead and feeling the need to protect yourself to arm yourself in some circumstances exactly yeah it's scary I'm sure that you know going back to the topic at hand I'm sure that Puerto Rico will be forever changed after this mm-hmm. I don't know really know Puerto Rico as a as a I almost said country I know it's not a country um as an island you don't know Puerto Rico <laughs> I I've been there but it's been a long time but I did have a very serious long-term Puerto Rican boyfriend who grew up there mm-hmm. talked a lot about the island talked a lot about you know their traditions and I met a lot of his family members who lived here and I just remember every whether it was Thanksgiving or Christmas, it was just like everybody was always dancing. That's like the Puerto Rican thing. They're always dancing. The old ladies are dancing. The grandmas are dancing. The little kids are just all dancing. And I'm sure they'll go go on dancing. But, you know, I wonder if a little bit of that joie de vivre will be dampened after this disaster that just affected everybody. Yeah. Just everybody. Or will they be somewhat like New Orleans where they just keep on Keep on with the music in the streets and the dancing and the little kids being more popular if they're in the band than if they're on the football team. (laughs) Well, I can definitely get behind that. Yeah, it's that big question of the spirit, the inherent spirit of a place as well, the cultural spirit of a place. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Well, boy, we've been all over the place, all (laughs) over the world. That was an uplifting episode, everyone. Um, take care of your friends, your family, your neighbors. And should we leave it there? Yes. Is there any other announcements we need to make? Um, I don't think so. Oh, well, yes. We just want to give a little shout out to Estrella Gomez, who is our new intern, who is based in Rome here. So um, she's um, she's doing a great job for us and being really, really helpful, especially in the social media and marketing area. So thank you, to Estrella. Yes, and she runs a blog called La Casa Blogger. You can find her there on Instagram. All right. Actually, we should have her on the show sometime. Maybe if I get over to Rome this year, we'll do like a three-way interview. That would be fun. Yes, we should interview her. So get ready. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're coming for you. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I found my radio recreation of Hurricane Katrina and its aftermath, created on the one-year anniversary of the storm. It's kind of like a time capsule of what the storm and the aftermath was like and the raw emotional stories that reporters in radio and television news were capturing at the time. And yes, I can't listen to it all the way through, still, without crying all these years later. I hope you enjoy this transport back to 2005 and that it somehow enriches the conversation that Tiffany and I just had. But first, remember to look for the Bittersweet Life podcast on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook. Tell your friends and visit thebittersweetlife.net and make a donation so we can keep making the show. We rely on your support to keep going. 
So lend a hand any way you can if you love the show. And now, Hurricane Katrina begins on August 29th, 2005. One bedroom house I live in. So it's probably going to be floating down the road by tomorrow. Our Gulf Coast is getting hit and hit hard. In the meantime, America will pray. Pray for the health and safety of all our citizens. That's the roof getting ready to come off of the hotel. That's the Hampton Inn. They're getting ready to lose their roof on the back side of the building. Just before dawn, Katrina heads northwest, straight for the coast, down a hair from its 175-mile-per-hour peak. But still a ferocious Category 4, and New Orleans buckles in for a bumpy ride. The storm makes landfall at 6.10 local time. It was incredible. The noise is what's scary. The ceiling up there, water through the windows. The storm surge has been much bigger than anything ever before. The result has been, in some cases, people being trapped. My name is Robert Lynn Green Sr. from the Lower Night Ward. In the house that night was my mother, my brother, my cousin, who's mentally challenged, and my three granddaughters. At 4 a.m., my brother woke us up and said, Robert, we have water in the house. Then when we got in the attic, we situated everybody because we have some flooring in there where we could just sit around and my brother kicked out the louver just so we could see outside and see Robert the water still rising we got to go on the roof then he said the back of the house separated from the front of the house then he said the houses are moving when we put my granddaughter Shanae on the roof so I put her on the roof first and when I turned my back to get her sister she fell in and start screaming, Jesus, Jesus. I realize I can't lose my composure. I can't lose my uh, control of the situation. So I stop screaming, put it behind me. The hurricane stops. My brother stands up and say, Mama didn't make it. She didn't die early in the morning. She didn't die while the hurricane uh, was passing the first wave in the eye. But between the second wave and 1 o'clock, she died. And my mother finally felt that she was dying. She told my brother that she was going to take care of Nene. So basically, she knew everybody else was okay. So she knew her was all right. She knew we were all right. She knew the other ones were all right. So she closed her eyes and said she was going to take care of my granddaughter. When my granddaughter died, I knew when she fell in the water, she knew I was up there, and I wasn't there for her. My mom died, I just felt like I wasn't there for her. I felt like I'm the person that they depended on. I'm the person they knew would do better for them. And it was like I couldn't do nothing to help them. Martin Savage is on the streets of New Orleans right now with the very latest on conditions there for us. Martin? There's a lot of damage that is out here. It's littered all over the streets. There are a lot of trees that have come down. There are par uh, parts of buildings, especially the old brick buildings, that have collapsed onto the street. 
some of the hotels, especially the Hyatt, have been shredded all morning long. You could hear window after window just exploding. You could see the curtains, the drapery, and everything that was inside that hotel room being sucked out in the frenzy that was created by this hurricane. Looks like a bomb went off downtown. Hurricane Katrina certainly arrived here with explosive power and not even as destructive as first predicted. Last night when this storm was a monster category five, all eyes were on New Orleans. Then a tiny last minute turn to the right delivered a huge blow to the neighboring Mississippi coast. As of tonight, a state of emergency is in effect here in this state, in Mississippi and Alabama as well. Katrina could become the costliest single storm in U.S. history, with insurers already estimating as much as $25 billion in damage. And the human misery is just getting underway. Millions are without power, many without homes at all. We already stressed out. And now I came here and stole my TV. Stop, stop. We don't have nothing. It took a little stuff that we did have. What do I need? We need clothing, water, and food. They have several people died out here, and, you know, I don't want to become of one of them. Coast Guard rescuing people off of rooftops. This is happening live right now in New Orleans, Louisiana. As you've been watching this, the levee system in Louisiana and New Orleans was breached. It was believed earlier that perhaps parts of the French Quarter would be spared this, but those levees, which were put in place after Hurricane Camille to make sure the city would not be flooded, unfortunately, the strength of Katrina, which came on as a Category 4 storm, proved to be too much for the levees. And as you can see, so many people have had to climb to their rooftops. You've been hearing our reporters say that is the only way that many people have survived the wrath of Hurricane Katrina. So this is someone who has been on that rooftop for how many hours and in the middle of the night, not knowing what's going on with the water, the absolute terror, no electricity, probably completely pitch dark out there, rising waters, you're on a rooftop. Uh, I, I can't even imagine what a horrifying experience it has been. Katrina may have moved on, but she's still causing trouble to hundreds of thousands of people in New Orleans who are either homeless or without power tonight. People are dying inside the city of New Orleans today, and that city has descended further into chaos tonight. They feel forgotten, and the people inside the city of New Orleans are asking repeatedly today, the people in Washington, are you watching? Are you listening? 15,000 people in the city's convention center alone. How is a three-week-old infant going to be able to survive out here with no milk, no water? No food, no water. I mean, the bare necessities. What we get? Nothing. It is wrong. We have no water. You could have dropped it from the sky from them helicopters. Wardell Edwards rode a boat to safety with 18 children from his housing project. Their mothers couldn't fit in the boat and stayed behind to wait for rescuers. That was two days ago. Today, still no sign of the women. So I love them. That's why I do all I can do for them. It is all simply too much to comprehend, and in rare, quiet moments, too much for those still trying to save this city to handle. Nobody's coming to get us. Nobody's coming to get us. The secretary has promised. Everybody's promised. They've had press conferences. I'm, I'm sick of the press conferences. For God's sakes, shut up and send us somebody.
I don't feel like I'm an American anymore. Katrina exposed serious problems in our response capability at all levels of government. And to the extent that the federal government didn't fully do its job right, I take responsibility. I want to know what went right and what went wrong. I want to know how to better cooperate with state and local government. To be able to answer that very question that you asked, are we capable of dealing with a severe attack or another severe storm? And that's a very important question. And it's in our national interest that we find out exactly what went on and so that we can better respond. There was a promise to do whatever it took. And I did not see that executed. They were aware of everything, that there was a significant risk to wherever the storm hit, that it was going to create some pretty devastating effects, that the Superdome roof was a question mark, that we would need lots of help, and that they needed to bring the Army and DHS involved in this effort. And it surprises me that if there was that kind of awareness, why was the response so slow? It was so surreal. Reality hit that water can come over that levee, water can fill up dry land, and it's coming after you. Better get ready to save your life. And I'm going to be honest with you, I pray all the time. That was the most sincere prayer I ever said. And I said as an individual, I said, Lord, if you get me out of this one, I'll never stay again. And I feel like he answered my prayers. Because not long after that, got calm. The water started to recede a little bit. We felt like we were Gilligan, all on Gilligan's Isle. And they come around, and they told us to get in the boat. And we knew we were going to be all right. One of the deputies came and said, man, everybody going around and say you did. You didn't make it. You know, and because the one thing, the whole school, everybody knew I'd never leave for a hurricane. I don't care how severe or not severe, the next storm, the next evacuation, I'm leaving. We welcome your questions and your feedback. Reach the show by emailing bittersweetlife at mail.com. That's bittersweetlife at mail.com.